want to invite you to open up your Bibles today to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. I'm actually going to reread 1 Peter 2, 12, which we looked at last week, but we'll dive into 1 Peter 2, 21. Two weeks ago, we talked about how the Bible promises us, Jesus told us this, Peter told us this, Paul tells us this, the Bible promises us that we are going to be persecuted, we're going to have people speak evil against us because of our connection with Jesus Christ. It's a promised reality to us as believers. In 1 Peter 2.12, Peter addresses how we are to respond when that inevitably happens. Let me read it to you. That's what we looked at two weeks ago. <clears throat> Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, and that's people that do not know the Lord. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so that's the response when this persecution comes in our life, we're supposed to respond honorably so that our actions, which will be so radically different than the world, will turn them to the Lord. Now, immediately following that, following that in 1 Peter, he gives some difficult things. He talks about how we're supposed to engage with the government as believers. He talks about how we're supposed to respond to the authority in our lives as believers. And I'm actually, we're actually going to get into that next week. Um, and today we're going to jump ahead a few verses. I'm going to tell you why. Because in, in, uh, in verse 21, Peter goes into detail about how that we have the power and how we have the ability to actually respond in an honorable way when we're persecuted or people speak evil against us. And this is such an important verse for us. <clears throat> because um, last couple of weeks, guys, church, I had so many folks write me, call me, Pull me aside, talk to me, and there was like, Pastor Matt, 1 Peter 2.12. It was so convicting. I needed to hear that. I need to start living that out. I need to respond honorably when people speak evil against me. And that's awesome. But here's the reality. It's one thing to get convicted and say that we're going to respond honorably when somebody attacks us or speaks evil against us. But when it actually happens, when we're actually attacked, we're actually maligned, Responding honorably is a really difficult thing to do. Y'all with me? It's a lot easier said than done. I mean, think about it. You're in traffic and um, yeah, y'all know. I don't even have to finish the sentence. <laughs> you don't mean to, I did it the other day. This, this, this lane was merging together. So I merged a, a, a little bit sooner. This guy that was behind me really aggressively pulls up beside me and gave me a not very nice hand gesture, right? I did not mean to do it, right? I, didn't, I couldn't explain to him that I didn't mean to do it. Um, spouse treats you poorly. It's because they're having a bad day. I mean, you think about the boss that overlooks you for a promotion uh, because of office politics or somebody on social media that makes fun of you for your belief in God or maligns you for your political stance or whatever. I could keep going. We've all been in situations like that, and so you know how unbelievably difficult it is to actually respond in that moment in a way that honors the Lord. 
And I want to take a second and I want to make a clarification here before we jump into the text. And that's that what the Bible is addressing here is how we respond, not just to suffering, but it's telling us how to respond to unjust suffering. Because the reality is, is there's two kinds of suffering that we can experience. Number one is unjust suffering which is suffering and persecution that comes to us for no fault of our own, right? We didn't mean to do it. We weren't trying to do it. We weren't really sinning, but the suffering comes and the persecution comes. The other kind of suffering is just suffering, which means that you're experiencing persecution or suffering because of something that you actually did, some sin that you committed, right? If you got fired at your job because you're lazy and you have a bad work ethic, right? You're not suffering unjustly. You're suffering because you're lazy and you have a bad work ethic, right? If you're suffering in your marriage because your wife, men, your wife isn't treating you well, that might be her fault. You might be suffering unjustly, but it might be because you're a bad husband, right? You're suffering justly. It's really important that we understand the difference because if you're experiencing persecution because of your sin, there's a certain way that you need to respond and that's that you need to stop the behavior that's causing the suffering. But when as believers, we encounter real unjust suffering, no fault of our own, as difficult as it is, the scripture tells us that we are to respond by the spirit of God in an honorable, kind, noble, winsome, and excellent way. We talked about that last week. And I think Peter understood. I mean, he's writing these people that are about to experience Severe persecution. I think he knew how difficult that would be because in verse 21, 21, he starts unpacking, like, how do we do this? How do we do this when it happens? Let's read it together. First Peter chapter two, verse 21. Peter says, for to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And so what Peter just did is he gave us three things of how we're able to respond honorably when we encounter unjust suffering. Number one, he tells us to remember your calling. That's the first thing we've got to do. When it actually comes in our life, we've got to remember our calling. I'll talk about that in a minute. Number two, he tells us to remember Jesus' example or remember Christ's example. And the third thing he tells us when suffering, unjust suffering, persecution comes is we've got to remember to trust the Lord. Got to remember to trust the Lord. So let's look at that first one. Persecution comes in our lives. People speak evil against us. The first thing we need to do is remember our calling. Now, why do I say that? Go back one verse and let's look at 1 Peter 2.20 to get the context again of what he's talking about. <clears throat> Peter says, for what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So he's like, hey, what good is it if you're out there sinning like a big dog and you get beat for it and you endure through that? You got beaten because you were sinning. He says, but if you're out there doing good 
and you suffer for it as a believer and you endure through that, that is a gracious, it's a precious thing in the sight of God when he sees it. And so the context he is talking about is unjust, listen, unjust suffering for the cause of Christ. Now, in the very next verse, in verse 21, immediately Peter starts talking about something and it's fascinating. And I've never paid any attention to it till this week and it blows me away. The context is unjust suffering. And in the very next verse, in verse 21, he says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Sage Mott, I want you to listen to me really carefully. What the scripture just told us is that unjust suffering is a calling by God on your life. That's what it just said. For years, I thought that it was saying our response to unjust suffering is the call. The more I'm look, looked at it, the more I'm convinced that he's saying suffering for the cause of Christ unjustly is a call on our life which is fascinating because in biblical terms, what is calling? Calling is a special invitation by God into something that he wants you to accomplish. That's what a calling is. Don't turn there, but I just want you to listen. I'll give you some verses that talk about calling. In Romans 1, 6, Paul says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And so the first thing the scripture tells us is that we are called to belong to Jesus. God calls us into salvation. In 1 Corinthians 1, 9, Scripture says, God is faithful by whom you are called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So not only are you called into salvation, but you're called into fellowship with God. In Romans 8, 28, he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so God calls us into salvation. He calls us into fellowship with him. And he calls us to fulfill his purposes. I could keep going on and on. But here's the point I'm trying to make. All those things I just shared with you are amazing things that God calls us into. Right? If, if I say, Sagemont, you are called by God to belong to Jesus, what do you say? Amen. Right? If I said you're called by God to be in fellowship with him, you say amen. If I say you're called by God to fulfill his purposes in your life, you say amen. But if I said, Sagemont, you're called by God to experience unjust suffering. There's crickets. Oh, y'all want to say amen, but you don't. <laughs> but that's exactly what the scripture just told us. Peter's saying, look, it's coming. It's coming. Take it to the bank. The world is going to speak evil against you because of your faith in Christ and the key to endure it. One of the keys to enduring it, one of the keys to actually responding honorably through that thing is to remember that that is a calling that God has placed on your life. Calling really is key to enduring hardship. Realizing that God called you to something, that he's involved somehow, it's key. Um, if you were to ask me, Matt, why are you a pastor? Like, why, why'd you become a pastor? The first thing out of my mouth, I'm going to tell you because God called me into it. I would use that exact language. Because if you would have come to me when I was 19, 20 years old and said, Matt, what do you want to do when you grow up? I'm telling you right now before Jesus that pastor would not have made the top 500 list. 
Like it wouldn't have made my list. It didn't cross my mind. Like I, I, I never once in my life thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be a pastor, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up and talk every Sunday for 30 minutes. I didn't want to, I, it never crossed my mind. But in a really miraculous way, I shared with Sagemont before, in a very miraculous way, God called me. He placed a calling on my life. I have zero doubt I'm supposed to be in it because he called me. Now, here's the reality. Being a pastor is sometimes really difficult. Um, it's, it's, it's hard. And there have been a handful of times through the years that I really wanted to quit. There's been one time I almost quit. But what's kept me in it was my calling by God. Um, I've had death threats. I've had one semi-serious one and one really serious one. One was so serious, the FBI got involved. And maybe I'll tell you all about that one day. But I literally, when it was done, I was sitting there thinking, my gosh, if people actually try to kill me, I'm out, right? <laughs> but what kept me in was my calling. I've, I've had times where the criticism I received got really overwhelming. I think I shared this with you guys um, maybe in the Peacemaker sermon about nine, ten months ago, but um, it was my first year of ministry. I was a youth pastor. I was a junior. This little, uh, in college, little tiny church at Texas A&M, and we were, it was a weekend, we were having a party for the kids, for the students at the lake, and I forgot the lemonade. I forgot the lemonade, which is kind of important at a party at the lake for kids, but anyway, we figured it out. We went and bought some lemonade, but I forgot the lemonade, and this one lady that was one of my volunteers got really mad at me. Because I'm, I'm a junior in college. I don't know what I'm doing. I forgot to eliminate. Well, anyway, she set up a meeting um, with our, our pastor on Monday morning. He was about 70 years old. And um, the three of us were sitting there. And to keep, give you some context, the student ministry was growing. It was growing like crazy. Kids were getting saved. I just was unorganized. I had no idea what I was doing. That's why I forgot to eliminate. But anyway, she looks at me in front of the pastor and she says, these are exact words. She said, Matt, I want you to know that you are the worst youth pastor in the history of our church. <laughs> y'all laugh, but y'all thought that about me. <laughs> so she says, you're the worst youth pastor in the history of our church. And I looked at my pastor like, you going to let her say that to me? And I kid you not, this is what he did. He went. <laughs> like, I kind of agree with her, you know. But I, you can ask my wife, I got really close to just years ago, hanging it up. And no matter what I faced, whether it's death threats, whether it's criticism, whether it's slander, whatever I faced, what has kept me in it, what has kept me from walking away was the fact that I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord God Almighty called me to be a pastor, not me. And if, if, if the Lord calls you into something, if the Lord calls you into something, then man can never call you out. And that's why Peter's saying here, and it's such a, I've, I've overlooked it for years, but it's such a critical part of this whole thing that we're enduring as a country, that we're enduring as believers, in some crazy way, God is at work here and he says, for to this you have been called. Now, why in the world would God do that? Because, do you know what hit me this week? This kind of blows a hole in the health wealth gospel. Y'all with me? 
To this you have been called. Why would God call us to unjust suffering? It seems like he would want to protect us from unjust suffering. Don't turn there. I just want you to watch again because I want to read 1 Peter 2.12 again for you. Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's talking about the day of judgment. And so when people speak, uh, speak evil against us, when they persecute us, responding in a Christ-like way in that moment is so radical. It, it's so countercultural that the scriptures say in that moment actually has the power to turn people's hearts to God. I want to read you a verse real quick, just, just one little story where I think this actually happened. It's in Mark chapter 15, verse 37. Mark 15, 37, it's Jesus on the cross and he's about to die here. It says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was facing him saw that in this way, breathed his last and the centurion said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now guys, that was the centurion that probably nailed the nails into Jesus' hands and feet because he was standing at the foot of the cross. Jesus breathes out his last. He'd watched Jesus through the whole ordeal of the cross, through his beating, through all that stuff. And when Jesus breathed his last, the thing that God said, he's the son of God. I think we can make a pretty strong argument that the guy got saved in that moment. Why? Because Jesus lived this out. Guys, I want you to hear me in this. Listen, unless the Lord returns, which I hope he does, or there is a massive revival, I am 100% convinced that it's going to get really, really difficult to be a Christian in this country. I'm, I'm just, I'm not trying to say that for effect. I'm not trying to say that to scare you. Um, I'm just at the place where I, I think it's going to get bad. And I think Satan knows his time is short. And so he's going to go down swinging. So when it gets bad, like Jesus promised us in this book that it would, I really do think that the only way that we're actually going to endure it, the only way we're actually going to respond like we're called to in the scripture without losing our witness completely is when we remember that God has called us to this. And so the first thing we do when unjust suffering comes, number one, remember your calling. Number two, remember Jesus' example. So let's read it again. First Peter 21, 2, 21. Peter says, for to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It's the first thing he tells us, look, on how to endure unjust suffering, he says, remember God called you to this. And the second thing he tells us is to remember that Jesus walked through unjust suffering before you. And when he did, he gave us an example that we can actually look at and know exactly how to respond, okay? Now, let me stop there and say this. It's important to remember, church, that if there's ever been a human being in the history of the world that experienced unjust suffering, it's Jesus. 
on the cross. Why, why was it unjust suffering? Because the man never sinned in his whole life. He never sinned one time. The scripture is crystal clear. He was without sin. And yet he was brutally tortured. He was mercilessly whipped and beaten and stripped naked and nailed by his hands and feet for six hours on a cross. Not for his sin, but for your sin and for my sin. What Jesus experienced at Calvary was hands down the greatest example of unjust suffering in the history of the world. And yet Peter tells us that when unjust suffering and persecution comes, one of the things that is critical that we do is we remember how Jesus walked through it. And then we follow in his footsteps. Let's see how he did it. First Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Look at verse 22. Peter says, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And so through the entire process of Jesus experiencing the most unjust persecution in the history of the world, he never responded to the sin coming against him by sinning in return. And I don't know if you've noticed, church, but we don't do that very well. Human beings have a really bad habit of responding to sin against us by sinning in return. Whether it's race relations, whether it's politics, whether it's marriage, for crying out loud. The whole world, including Christians, have gotten to this place where we have convinced ourselves, we have justified ourselves, things that, that things have gotten so bad that our only course of action to respond to the sins being committed against us, which are very real, is to sin in return. But here's the thing, guys. And I, I don't have time to go into all the examples because there's so many, but I'm just gonna say one thing about this. As a believer, as a child of God, the reality is that as a Christian, this is what you need to wrestle with. No matter what we face, no matter how unjust it gets, this is the thing that you and I on a daily basis have to wrestle with, and that's when Jesus Christ was experiencing the most unjust suffering in the history of the world. He did not sin in return. And the scripture, the Holy Spirit inspired word of God says, hey, believer, that's your example. You're called to it. Walk in his footsteps, okay? When he sinned, he did not sin in return. Look at 1 Peter 2, 21, one more time. He says, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you examples you might follow in his steps. When he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then this gets harder here. Verse 23, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten Okay, and so the second example Peter gives us of how we live this out and how Jesus responded to unjust suffering, it says when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. What did that look like when Jesus did that? I was thinking about it. Jesus was reviled mercilessly. Before and during the crucifixion, um, soldiers cried out to him, hey, this mocking way. They cried out, hey, I thought you were the king of the Jews. They weren't being respectful. They even took a sign and in a mocking way hung it above his head. It says the king of the Jews. 
Well, guess what? He is the king of the Jews. But he never defended himself. He never said a word. He could have. He didn't. They cried out to him when he was on the cross. I, I, I thought you trusted God. Hey, I thought you trusted God. If you trust God, won't you trust God to get you off the cross? Oh, I'm sorry, you can't because your hands are nailed. Your feet are nailed to that tree. He never said a word. And my goodness, he could have. But he didn't. The thief next to him on the cross mocked him, hurled insults at him. He never said a word. As a matter of fact, the only thing that he ever said to the verbal hatred that was being cast upon him was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' response to the insults and the hatred and the mockery was love, and it was kindness, and it was forgiveness. Peter says, that's your example. Follow in his footsteps. But that's not easy to do either, is it? Uh, years ago in my church in Austin, I did a three-week series on giving, which is always fun, right? When you do a three-week series on financial generosity and stuff, and I always get nervous. I always get nervous when I do a series on giving because maybe more than anything else, and the scripture even attests to this, money has a tendency to be an idol in our lives. Maybe more than anything else, we have a tendency to make money an idol. And what I've discovered as a pastor is when you mess with people's idols, they get angry. And so whenever I teach on money, and I probably will here at some point, but whenever I do, I, I'm really intentional about just sticking to the Bible. I try not to put a ton of my own stuff in there. I just try to stick to the scripture. And so in this particular three-week series, in the first week, I taught on the rich young ruler. And the story of the rich young ruler is this guy comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And the guy thought, awesome, sweet, I do that. Is there anything else I need to do, Jesus? And Jesus said, yep, there's one more thing that you lack. If you want to follow me, you can receive eternal life. He says, sell all your possessions. Give your money to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. You'll get eternal life. You can follow me. And the scripture says that that rich young guy walked away very sad because he had great possessions. Now listen, Jesus' point was not that Giving money to the poor would save him and earn his way into heaven. Jesus' point there is that money was on that man's heart, the throne of his heart. He loved money more than Jesus. And Jesus says, look, if you want to follow me, if you want to go to heaven, you got to take money off the throne of your heart and you got to put me there. And then you can follow me. But the guy didn't do it. And the guy turns around to the audience and he said that famous quote. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. And his point is it's really hard for a rich person to go to heaven because they love money more than Jesus. A lot of times, right? Without the entire series, church, I, I just stuck to the text. I just, on that particular sermon, all I did was just challenge people to see, is money your idol? I never asked to give money to the church. Not one time in the entire three-week series. I was just like, hey, is money your idol? Because Jesus said, it's really hard to go to heaven if money is your idol. Well, lo and behold, first night, get home, it's tired, laying in bed, I get an email. And it was nasty. It, I was thinking about it. It was number three, like nastiest email of all time. Number one, it was a guy at my former church, was a lot worse than this. Number two, member of Sagemont, but this was number three, all right? <laughs> and so that's true. And 
and I, 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 it was something like this. I said, I knew you were just like all the other pastors. All you want is money. You're just a money-hungry crook like all the rest of them, blah, 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 okay? Now, listen, those kind of emails, they really don't bother me much anymore because when somebody lashes out like that, I've just learned it really, they're usually hurt or they're wounded and they're just kind of lashing out at me. I'm 47 now. Then I was about 32, and it really bothered me. It really hurt me. It really angered me because I had literally gone out of my way not to ask for money and just preach the text. And so in a very real sense, this guy was reviling me and I did not deserve it, but I was 32 and I was mad. So this is what I wrote out. I wrote this email out. I typed it up. Y'all ready for this? Don't hate me. I mean, just laugh. It's funny now, but just this is what I said. (laughs) I wrote this up. I said, by the way you have responded to me, it's obvious that you love money more than Jesus. And Jesus said, Jesus said, it's harder for a camel to go through than I have a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. So I hope you enjoy your time in hell. I wrote it out. It was cathartic. It was cathartic. But I didn't send it because of this verse. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. That wasn't easy to do. I actually did wrote him back, true story. By the grace of God, I just said, hey man, I'm so sorry. That was not my heart. That wasn't what I was trying to do. I said, hey, if you'd, love, if you'd like to get together, let's get together, let's get to know each other. Maybe you can understand more where I'm coming from. I'm really sorry, please forgive me. Two hours later, he wrote me back and he apologized. He's like, I'm so sorry. And we actually became friends and he became a part of our church. But I was thinking about it. I was like, what would have happened if I wrote, I hope you enjoy hell. You know, I, I don't think he's coming back. And so Peter's answering the question, how do we respond honorably when we're sinned against, lied about, reviled, mocked, persecuted? You remember your calling. Number two, remember Christ's example. Here's the last one. We're gonna see that as hard as this is, one of the ways that we're able to get through it is we remember to trust the Lord. We remember to trust the Lord through the whole thing. First Peter 2, 21. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. How in the world was he able to do all that? Watch, it says, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. That's so critical right there. It's so easy to forget. But the reason Jesus was able to respond in that moment of unjust suffering, the greatest example in the world, the reason he was able to do that, the scripture says through the whole ordeal, he just kept trusting that at the end of the day, God judges justly and he was gonna make it right. That is not easy to do. We want to take it into our own hands. We want to fix it. We want to deliver justice. But the scripture says, here's your example. Jesus kept trusting God to be the one to deliver justice when it was all said and done. Let me just read to you. Paul talks about this thing, almost done here. But I just want to read you a couple of verses where this, just reiterating this, Romans 12, 18. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Listen to how King David trusted God in the midst of his suffering. I love this verse. It's Psalm 27, 13. Psalm 27, 13. King David said, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I love that. King David, everything was falling apart. And he's like, I would have lost it. I would have been done. I would have been without hope unless I believe in the bottom of my heart that God is just. And I was going to see his goodness in the land of the living. So when your spouse treats you poorly or is unfaithful to you, when your friend betrays you, when your boss overlooks you, when the world attacks you and ridicules you and reviles you, you have a choice. You can respond like the world does. You can repay evil for evil. Repay sin with sin. Or you can respond like Jesus. And how Jesus responded is that through the whole thing, he trusted God. He trusted that God was going to hold him. He trusted that the Lord was going to sustain him. And he trusted that the Lord was going to vindicate him. And that's how he was able to do it. I want to end today by reminding you that these words were not just words that Peter wrote. But he actually was forced to be in a place in his life where he had the choice to live them out or not. History tells us that Peter was martyred for Christ. He was crucified for Jesus. But in the fascinating part, history tells us that when they were walking Peter to the cross, he got to the cross and he stopped them and he asked if he could be crucified upside down. And they asked him, why would you do that? Why do you want that? And his words were, because I am not worthy to be crucified in the manner of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Andrew, I read this in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Andrew, his brother, he also was crucified. They tied his hands together, and as he was walking the hill to the cross, he just pointed at the cross. And they slapped his hands down and he just kept pointing at the cross, staring at the cross, slap it again. He kept pointing. And finally they said, stop doing that. Why are you doing that? Here's what he said. He said, I would not have preached the glory of the cross if I feared death on the cross. He says, but I embrace it because it will be the way which I finally see my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now listen, how do you do that? How do you do that? This tells us you remember your calling. You follow Jesus' example and you trust the Lord. In my experience, there are very few things in this life that are more difficult than this. Responding with love and kindness and forgiveness when you've been wrong. But I'll tell you this, there are very few times in your life where you'll look more like Jesus than when you do. And when you do, The scripture says it's precious in the sight of God.